Hello and welcome to a new episode of 20 and Trying. As always, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Peyton. And this week, Charlotte sat down with Allie Kriegsman, the co-founder and COO of Bulletin.com and author of the newly released book, How to Build a Goddamn Empire. This was another episode recorded while I was sick, but I will be back next week to chat. Ellie and I chatted about creating Bulletin and adapting to changes just like we do in our 20s, knowing when it was right for Bulletin to be her full-time job, and understanding that imposter syndrome is not something we need to fix. As always, thank you for tuning in this week and make sure to keep listening for some exciting new changes. Let's get into the episode. Hi, how are you, Charlotte? I'm good, Allie. How are you? I'm good. Well, if you're ready, we can just jump right in. Let's do it. Okay. We start every episode off on a positive note. So what is your weekly optimism for the week? My weekly optimism for the week is I'm about to get out of the city for the first time in a very long time. And go be in the beach and get some greenery going on. Uh, So really excited to go be in nature and just have like a little change of pace for a while. Feeling very good about that. Oh my gosh. I bet that is like such a welcome change. I mean, this past year has been kind of rough on everyone, but I know I've always thought like, oh my gosh, thank God I am where I am because I can actually get out of my house. And I don't know how people up in the city can do it. I feel like city people are city people. Like we love the hustle and bustle. I mean, it's great to be in New York right now. Like I just had an offsite with my team earlier this afternoon. We were outside drinking in Bushwick and uh, the city's really coming back to life. But I feel like uh, city people also need a break sometimes. (laughs) And I definitely reached a little bit of a breaking point in the past few weeks after the book launch. So I'm really, really excited to, to go catch a bit of a break. Well, I bet it is very much deserved. I probably would have to say my weekly optimism is this interview just because you are such a wealth of knowledge. And I think you really represent, like I I read a lot of your interviews and obviously what you were doing with your book launch. I think that you represent what we're really trying to convey with 20 and trying and how things aren't really linear and that the path to success isn't just you're going to do it once and you're going to do it great. And that's kind of what our 20s is all about. So I'm really excited for this interview. Thank you. Yeah. I have been reflecting a lot on my 20s lately because I turn 30 in almost exactly a month from today. So I'm really excited to dive into it. And I've been prepared. I've been like very, you know, thinking about my 20s the past few weeks for sure. Well, then this episode, I guess, came at the perfect time. Yes. So. You are the co-founder and you're also the chief operating officer of Bulletin. And recently Mm -hmm. you published a book, How to Build a Goddamn Empire, which is about your business and version of success. But you've also mentioned in interviews, and you were very open about this, that you had a fear of failure and anxiety, specifically when it came to being a founder. So where do you think this fear of failure comes from and why do we even have it? I think that it's always been there. I think it's really been exacerbated by social media, honestly. I think that more than ever, we're all stuck with everyone's highlight reels. We see everyone's wins. We see their press hits. We see when they secure 
a really cool partnership or maybe they're running a brand and they start to work with a really cool influencer um, or they get some sort of recognition or, you know, they come out with a new product line and we see all the highlights and social media isn't really about what happens in the in-between. And so much of what happens in the in-between is trial and error and so, so, so much failure. And I think most women especially have dealt with a fear of failure. Um, You know, we're held to higher standards as leaders. Mothers are held to higher standards than fathers. I would argue from personal experience, maybe even daughters are held to higher standards than brothers. Um, And I think so often women put themselves on a pedestal and they set really high benchmarks for themselves. And I think a lot of that comes from external societal pressure. I think that for that reason, we're kind of trained to feel fear failure from a very young age because we want to live on that pedestal. We want to stay on that pedestal. We feel pressure to be perfect. We feel pressure to meet all those requirements, expectations, and demands. But I think it's gotten much worse in the past few years with social media, especially because you don't see other people failing. You'll see like candy colored Instagram accounts that like talk about failure or share a quote about failure. Um, But you don't really see most people's behind the scenes before they got that big win or the big failure that they had to stomach and get over, you know, years before they launched their business or they got into that great school, that great college. So I think social media has made it a lot worse. And I don't really, I don't really have the answer, but I think for me, I try to be a bit vulnerable about times when I failed, whether it's in the book or on social so that people look at me and know that failure is just part of the equation. Like you said, it's not like one day you pursue success or the spotlight, it happens and it's over. Um, Even if you find success, I know firsthand, it it doesn't last. It can be very fleeting and success is a mindset. It's not like a one and done thing that just happens. And do you think even when people do post a little bit about the struggles and how you For instance, I know that you were really open and honest about everything and people were even like, well, why are you doing that? Do you think the wins stay with other people more so than remembering, oh, other people fail? Yeah, a thousand percent. I think that everyone compares themselves to other people. I mean, it's still, it's literally still happens to me and I've gotten much better at catching myself, but we forget that other people are like, dealing with a completely different toolkit than we are. Like I've come to realize it makes no sense for me to compare myself to you or to someone else because my journey and my history and what's at my disposal and my resources might look completely different from someone else. You know, that might be in a positive direction because I went to an Ivy League school that's afforded me networking opportunities and connections that you know, my friends who maybe went to community college would have to work harder to access. It's not that they can't access it, but that's my point. It's like, if I, let's say, secured an influencer for Bulletin or for my book, it maybe took me only one or two steps because of a part of my journey that's specific to me, whereas it might take someone else six steps because of a part of their journey that's specific to them. And I think that's kind of the irrational part of comparison is like, we're always comparing apples to oranges. Um, And I think that's often why 
people let the successes sit with them more than other people's failures, even if they are exposed to it, because they're still asking themselves, why not me? Or when's that going to happen to me? Or that's never happened for me. What am I doing wrong? And meanwhile, they're not really being cognizant of the fact that other people's wins are so closely intertwined with their class, their race, their network, their education, their families. And it's something that I think once people realize it becomes much easier to not just focus on the successes of the wins and also stop the comparison thing because you ultimately realize like we're not the same. So it really just is illogical for me to compare myself to you. I think that is so important. And I love how you think about how, what people's background is and what they bring to the table as well. Like how you each have a different toolkit and how that can affect, you know, your business or your path. Uh, because it's not just like step A and then step B there's so many different things. Um, and you also mentioned though, that you battled imposter syndrome. So what do you think the hardest part and I would like to hope though that you've been able to overcome that imposter syndrome, but what do you think the hardest thing about it when you're in the thick of it? And our May is focusing on mental health. And I think imposter Mm -hmm. syndrome is totally having this resurgence now, even though I know that it was coined in 1978. Yes, I did read the article that you wrote, but why do you think it's having this resurgence and how can we just sit in it and really process that feeling? Yeah, it's a really good question about why it's having a resurgence. I don't necessarily know that I have the answer, but I think that a lot of people, especially throughout the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, have been left with their thoughts a little bit more than they normally would, where they can socialize, see their families, be exposed to other people. I think that The pandemic has caused a lot of people to look inward and measure where they are against where they thought they would be. Um, I think they see their role in the workplace very differently. I think they're putting a closer magnifying glass over their careers and their journey so far, seeing what they could have done differently, what they could be doing differently, where they fell short. And I think, again, women have an impulse to answer that question with kind of like negative self-talk and self, they they answer in like a self-deprecating, negative, insecure way. I think that one of the most important things to remember about imposter syndrome, which is what I wrote in the article is imposter syndrome isn't this like internal disease that women have. It's caused by external factors, specifically being misrepresented or underrepresented in your context. It's why women in STEM report high levels of imposterism and subsequent anxiety and depression. Same thing with studies of, you know, black students in an all white college reporting similar uh, symptoms. Same thing for female founders in Silicon Valley. And I think that once you recognize that imposter syndrome isn't this like internal psychological like problem that's that's on you to fix. And it's really more of a societal problem and a contextual problem that needs to be dealt with in the boardroom and in the C-suite and in, you know, funding founders and in like elevating women of color to more leadership positions so that they see themselves represented. It's about getting more women in STEM. Like once you see those external factors, I think it becomes easier. Imposter syndrome becomes easier to manage because you get out of the headspace of, oh, something's wrong with me. And you enter the headspace of, 
this is a larger issue in the world that I happen to be experiencing because I'm a woman or I'm a person that's not represented in my context. I think the hardest part about navigating imposter syndrome for me was honestly just like trusting myself. I think that this is really weird to say, but there have been so many instances in the past few years where I wanted to go right and someone else told me or influenced me to go left. So I went left and then it turns out I should have gone right all along. A very few specific examples come to mind. And I think that feeling of deferring to other people comes from a sense of you not having the answer or not being smart enough or capable enough or legit enough or experienced enough to have the answer. And I think the hardest journey for me has been accepting that I'm smart, accepting that I'm right and accepting that sometimes I do have the answer. And I think I'm still on that journey. I'm still on that path. Like recently, I thought I should handle something one way and you know, people in my inner circle that I thought were more experienced than me told me to handle it another way. So I handled it their way. And I second guessed it the whole way through. And then it didn't turn out right, you know? So uh, it's not something that suddenly you're like, oh, I have all the answers. I'm smart. Like I'm going to go my way or the highway moving forward. Um, It's something that you're constantly wrestling with. But I think sometimes weirdly enough, it's really hard to admit that you are the one with the answers and that your instincts and that your direction is the right direction. That is a really I think, important topic for people to remember. And it kind of circles back to trusting your gut and listening, because if it's your business, you want to do something that really represents everything that your business is and the mission. But sometimes you also want to defer to another person who you respect or their leadership advice. And yeah, It is a really tough situation to be in, but I feel like I just have to sit in that for a minute because it's so, it's such a difficult topic because it's not just imposter syndrome because like, like for instance, I could have imposter syndrome of who gives me the right to have a podcast, but then in a bigger context, it's what you said about women in STEM or female founders, black students in a predominant predominantly white college like that is on such a larger scale than just like an individual's own feelings yeah and I think what's important too is like you can ask yourself who gave me the right to have a podcast but every podcast starts where your podcast is like mm-hmm. one of the most successful podcasts that I listen to is crime junkies I don't know if you listen to it it's like two women who just talk about true crime they have a new episode every week And they weren't like built in a lab with like head honcho entertainment people like backing this thing. Like they just decided to start just like you. And if they had asked themselves, if those two women had asked themselves who gave me a right to do this, they wouldn't have started or they wouldn't have kept going or they wouldn't have tried to make it better. And they wouldn't be like constantly ranked as the number one podcast on Apple Podcasts right now. So it's this funny thing where you're like, oh, I'm doing this negative self-talk thing and I'm telling myself I don't deserve this or I'm questioning like who gave me the right or the authority to do X, Y, Z. But everything that becomes anything has to start from ground zero and you're not going to be able to like make something meaningful unless you get over that voice. You're absolutely right. And on that note of making something meaningful, let's talk about Bulletin. So you had a full-time career before 
you put, I guess, all of your energy into Bulletin. So how did you know when it was the right time to really fully invest everything that you are into your company? To be honest, I like pushed back on it for so long. Like even while I was working on Bulletin when I was 24 and we first got started, I didn't want it to take over my life. And I really didn't want it to kind of subsume my whole identity because I consider myself a multifaceted person that has varying interests, desires, hobbies. I'm a very curious person. I love to learn. And I could feel this thing that Alana and I had started kind of starting to suck the life out of me. And as I write in the book, like Pac-Man the fuck out of my life, like it just ate up my free time. It started causing me to like sacrifice time with my friends or my partner or see my family less. And candidly, that didn't sit right with me. Like I didn't welcome that with open arms. Um, I think the reason that I kept going though, and the reason that at 20, I think I was like 26 when we eventually went full-time with Bulletin. The reason I decided to do it was because I was like, it's now or never. Like it was this feeling of, we have this window of opportunity. I really like my business partner and I trust her implicitly. I have savings. I had saved up from my career. Previously, I was in sales. So I would get really big commission checks every quarter. We had got a $20,000 grant. And as a stipulation of getting that grant, we had to go full-time with the business. And it just kind of felt like, I don't believe in God, but it felt like this moment where the heavens opened and it was like, here's a door. Like you're either going to walk through it or you're going to stay where you are. And I hate stagnating. It's like my biggest enemy. Like I always want to be improving. I always want to be learning. I always want to be growing. So I think the reason I let it Pac-Man the fuck out of my life, as I say, and the reason that I went headfirst into this journey and decided to go full-time with it was because I didn't want to have any regrets I felt like I was young. If I was going to take a risk, why not do it when I was young, didn't have kids, didn't really have other responsibilities. My family was healthy and I saw it as a way to grow and and get out of a path that could at minimum, even if the business blew up or we failed, it would have taught me something at minimum along the way. And Bulletin has gone through a lot of different, I guess, forms to I guess, put it in one way. It started as a newsletter, then it kind of became like a retail front and now it's a tech company. So how did you continue to adapt to all of these changes? And how do you think that adaptability is relatable and applicable to other 20 somethings? Yeah, I don't, I feel like that resilience and that adaptability was just, we had to, like the business was never, not doing well. Like the stores were independently profitable. Our pop-up markets were very lucrative. The stores and the pop-up markets just weren't scalable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that because we were never in like a dire situation with the business where it was like the roof is on fire, everything falling apart. Like we always had enough time and space and room to really re-strategize and pivot thoughtfully, our goal was to build the most kind of like sustainable, scalable business possible. And once we realized that our previous business models kind of left us 
and our employees super overworked and like the business was always kind of like breaking in half and bursting at the seams, it felt like a no brainer to try to evolve it in a direction that met our requirements and expectations for the type of business we'd want to be running. And I think that that applies to other 20 somethings because I think sometimes in my 20s, I didn't make changes until like the house was on fire. It's like I stayed in a relationship for way too long or I stayed in a friendship for way too long or I'll never forget. Like when I was in college, I really wanted to study creative writing, but I felt like it wasn't lucrative and wouldn't lead to a meaningful or lucrative career. And so I never studied it, never studied it. And then it suddenly dawned on me my senior year. I was like, oh my God, I'm like paying to be in college and I'm not studying the thing I want to study. And then finally, by my senior year, I ended up taking classes and ended up graduating with a creative writing minor. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what's applicable there is like, I think it's just really smart to constantly be monitoring where you want your life to go, who you want to be, and then where you are now. And instead of waiting until a massive failure happens or the house is on fire or a massive disappointment happens or you get fired from your job, you're in control. And if your career or your relationships or your friendships or your major don't measure up to your dream and what you envision for yourself, you can change those things before things break in half you don't have to wait for things to get really bad or to explode to make like a thoughtful pivot or evolution in your life, in any parts of your life. And I think that's what we did at Bulletin. Like we tested a few different business models back to back to back. As we did that, we got more familiar with ourselves as leaders, employers, the type of company we wanted to lead, the type of services and help we wanted to offer our customers, the type of business model we wanted to rely on. And we just kind of slowly but surely over the course of five years and change moved the company in in that direction as best we could. I think within our 20s, which are such a transitional time in our life, we're also always seeking guidance, which is very similar to what you said earlier on, like trusting your own gut. But it's hard to trust your own gut and know what the right decision is, or even when it's time to make a decision, if the sky is not falling. Like, yep. well, I think I'm just going to sit in my misery because yep. isn't that what adulting is? Yeah. And like, you don't yep. need to be miserable in your 20s. So I love that. And I also love how Bulletin and you continue to really change and grow and recognize, oh, there's another need in the market or how can we build mm-hmm. this? How can we make the most out of our business model? And it's so insightful. I don't want to bring this back to age, but to be that forward thinking at such a young age is amazing. I mean, I'm lucky because my business partner is a few years older than me. So I feel like I really had her mentorship and her perspective and things that felt impossible to me, like creating a tech company, hiring engineers, like all of those things felt so out of my depths at the time. But having someone like her remind me that we had done impossible things before, like it's not like I had run a retail store before we had run retail stores. Like it's not like I had run a pop-up market series before we ran like, you know, a massive every single weekend pop-up market series for an entire year. And I think remembering that and realizing that changes and impossible things, if you've done it once, like 
yeah, some change or new impossible thing might be harder than the thing you've did before, but it requires the same focus, resilience, tenacity. And if you already have those characteristics, then even if the new thing you're tackling or the new change you're approaching is like more stressful or technically harder to implement, you at least are left trusting that you have the internal toolkit to make it happen or to at least like give it your best shot. That's perfect. Um, And obviously you put a lot of this wisdom into your book, which is to show others that becoming an entrepreneur isn't all glitz and wins. So besides those, what are other falsities you think are out there about entrepreneurship? I think a lot of people think that they need some sort of like business education, like an MBA or that they needed to have studied it in college in order to be eligible to build a business. Um, So many of the founders I interviewed for my book and the like hundreds and thousands of founders I work with through Bulletin every day, they didn't have that business background, but they are eager learners and they are curious and they're overall competent and they're resilient. And I think those things are so much more important. Definitely think like, yeah, it probably makes sense to get an MBA if you want to like run a Fortune 500 company someday because MBAs give you that great networking opportunity. You know, I think if you're going to get hired as like CEO of a Fortune 500 company, like the board probably wants to see that you have an advanced business degree. But I think that if you want to launch a side hustle or a small business or a startup, the most important things are what I said, like being curious, being hungry to learn being resilient, um, not letting failure or missteps kind of stop you on your path to world domination and, and accomplishing your larger vision. And I think that in a lot of cases, that type of business education, it's, it's only affordable to the few, you know, most people can't get an MBA or most people can't go to classes to, to get that advanced degree. I would say another misconception is that you have to figure out everything. Like you have to be a jack of all trades. That's not the case. Like there are certain parts of the business that Alana and I outsourced from the very beginning because we knew that it was a weakness for us. Like we've had an accountant from day one. Like there was obviously a brief period where Alana was managing our cash flow and our money in, money out and our budgeting. Um, And we're still very involved in that, but like, we don't have time to like manually create those spreadsheets left and right, or to like track the entire company's expenses now that we have so many people on the team. So I think there's this misconception that like, you need to be really good at everything straight out the gate. And I think with tools like Upwork and Fiverr, it's like, if you're not a good copywriter, like you can pay a copywriter $45 an hour to do a project for you. Mm -hmm. If you're not good in Excel, like you can find a student, like a business student at a a college or like on one of those platforms to help you do that for you. You can hire an intern if you're not good at graphic design. So I think that a lot of people think like it's all on their shoulders because they're early stage, but I think there are truly like affordable ways to address your weaknesses as a business owner. And I think it's really important for people to know that they don't have to be great at everything straight out the gate, because I think that pressure is very intimidating and it probably dissuades people from, from getting started. Mm -hmm. There is also just such a risk and it goes back to even what we said in the beginning of this pressure to not fail. And I think it's, 
if people think like, oh, I'm not good at something, I will fail. Therefore, I don't even want to do it. Yeah. Yes. I think too, it's like, what, like, what is failure? It's like, if you work really hard at something and you get some sort of traction, like that's meaningful. Like I would much rather, I just hired someone to my team who had launched a startup that was featured in like TechCrunch and all these big publications. She was co-founder of the startup. She decided that instead of being in that kind of always on high pressure founder role, she much preferred to be in like a sliver of a company and wanted to work at a startup, but just be in like a tighter role within within a startup environment. And it's not like I interviewed her and was like, you were a failure because she left her startup. I was like, oh, wow, you launched this thing. You learned so much about yourself in launching this thing. You tactically learned skills that you're now going to bring to my company. And you've shown me that you're a self-starter. I'd much rather hire a self-starter that's like started something, got it some traction and is now trying to like work with me or bring that skill set to the table versus a super corporate person that worked at like a massive ad agency where I've interviewed them. And I'm like, okay, you're showing me that you worked on this project. Like what part of this project did you work on? And they only touch like such a little sliver because they're at a bloated organization where, you know, everyone's doing like one little piece of the machine. And so I think this fear of failure is like very silly because even if things don't work out the way that you wanted them to, more likely than not, the fact that you started something and worked on it and got it any traction in the first place is going to be meaningful to like future employers. It's going to be meaningful because you'll have learned a lot about yourself, like psychologically and emotionally and mentally, but you'll also have like learned new skills. Um, and I think all of that has to feel relevant. And if that doesn't feel relevant to you, and you think you're just a failure because you didn't exit your company or you didn't like IPO or you didn't get verified on Instagram. I mean, I think you're in this for the wrong reasons then. Mm -hmm. It's definitely reframing. I think what we consider to be failure. I love what you said about the person who you brought into your company who left the startup. I think that's wonderful because I don't, I would never view that as failure. I'm just like, Oh, she's doing something else. Yeah. And you hinted at this earlier, how, well, you started writing your book in 2017, but you also featured stories from 30 other female founders. So why did you want to include these stories instead of just writing about your own path? Yeah, it was really, really important for me that any person could pick up this book and learn something from it and relate to someone in the book. As we also talked about earlier, my journey is my journey. And there's such that goes into that ranging from where I went to school, the fact that I'm white, the fact that I grew up in the community that I grew up in, the fact that I like for most of my life grew up like upper middle class, the fact that I'm a venture backed founder, like we bootstrapped bulletin to a point and then we took outside financing. Um, not every person was going to pick up my book and be like, oh yeah, I'm also trying to find venture capital. Oh yeah, I also grew up upper middle class most of my life. And I think that by telling other women's stories, I'm able to cast a wider net and help more entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs feel seen. And that was such a big goal of my book. Like I wanted this book to be 
the replacement like support group of other founders that you could hear from and listen to if you didn't have that support group yet yourself. And I have such a diverse support group of founders and it brings me like a diversity of opinions, thoughts, experiences. And I just felt like my story was, it would be too homogenous. It wouldn't be helpful enough. It wouldn't help like the average aspiring entrepreneur, like pick up my book and relate to my story. Because again, my story is mine. It's so tied to like my journey thus far. And I wanted the book to be as true representative and relatable as possible. And that meant featuring women that started their business in college. It meant featuring mom entrepreneurs. It meant featuring uh, women in the cannabis space. It meant featuring sex tech founders. It meant featuring a founder that recovered from cancer. It meant Meet it, it meant meeting, you know, a founder that while building her business struggled with fertility. And I think that telling that wide breadth of stories just ensures that anyone who puts up my book can learn something and relate to a woman and, and the story that's featured. That is so beautiful. And it even goes back to, I think what you were talking about with imposter syndrome, because from the way that you were describing it, I think the only way that we can really rid our society and ourselves of imposter syndrome is if there are more women in places of leadership. And by highlighting those stories, it allows the opportunity for other women to find that community, just like what you said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and feel like, oh, I can do this too. Mm-hmm. That was the big thing. It's like, if there was a 14-year-old girl who was picking up my book, like she may not relate to me because she didn't grow up in a Jewish community and she didn't come from LA, but maybe she hears from, you know, Polly who grew up in the Midwest and had a different and like, you know, varied experience than me. And the girl could read about Polly and be like, Oh, Polly, like went into massive credit card debt to start her business. Like I'm in credit card debt and, and feel like it, it will all be okay. And I think that these women just brought so much authenticity and vulnerability to their stories. Like the example I gave of Polly, you know, taking out multiple credit cards to start her company, the story of Alexis, who speaks candidly about battling infertility while scaling her business, you know, the stories of Lillian and Laura who were juggling, you know, having multiple kids while growing their, their companies. I'm not a mom. And if a you know, mom was pushed out of the workforce because of COVID and is thinking of starting a business. I want her to know that she can buy my book. She'll get great lessons and experiences from me, but she'll hear from other moms and feel inspired that that she can do it too. I just keep thinking back about even how you said the pressures that women feel and how it seems as though, and again, I, I am sure that men have different struggles, obviously, than women, but a lot of what you had mentioned are definitely female-centered issues. Infertility yeah. is a big one. Um, or having kids. Like, why is that pressure always on the women? And yet we're still expected to have a job. We're expected to make the most of it. Or I don't know if men in their 20s feel the same sense of pressure that women in their 20s do when it comes to finding a job or getting married or having that relationship. Like, do they feel that weird TikTok time? Yeah. And- it's just, it's something that I don't know really if men feel that, or if there is even like an equivalent comparison, but to know that other women can pick up your book and find stories is such a beautiful thing. 
But I'm curious if you learned anything about yourself in the process of writing, because you started this in 2017 and it was published in 2021. So it was a really big process and you started Bulletin when you were 24, right? Yeah. You wrote the book as Bulletin was even growing. So did you learn anything about yourself in the process? Yeah, I really learned how strong I was. Like, I don't know how else to put it. I feel like I signed up for this thing. I got the book deal in 2018. I started the proposal in 2017. So yeah, like certain parts of the book were definitely, even as they're written today, like were written in 2017, but it was a lot of like super early mornings, really late nights, full weekends, just dedicated to interviews, getting these thoughts to paper, you know, editing, perfecting this thing, um, writing chapter after chapter, while growing the business, launching multiple stores, then pivoting the business, shutting down the stores, then getting the company through COVID. I mean, I definitely on a personal and professional level went through a lot while writing the book. And I think the biggest takeaway was just like what I said earlier, like I can do impossible things. Like I never thought that I never had written a book and like pivoted a company before the same way that I had never launched a tech company before or open stores before ran pop-ups before. And it definitely, I remember getting the book deal and feeling so excited. My mom was in town. I was just like crying hysterically with her on the street. And then immediately this feeling of like, oh shit, like I have to write a book now. (laughs) Just feeling so intimidated and so overwhelmed. But I think another big thing I learned is like, doing impossible things is about breaking everything down into little chunks, little pieces. And sometimes it's just waking up every day, setting your to-do list, crossing everything off the list, and then starting all over again. And instead of getting wrapped up in like the major massive deadline of like, this book has to be done by like X date in 2019, I stopped thinking about that. And I started thinking about like little incremental steps and gains And I learned about myself that like that actually helps me a lot with my anxiety. I think when I think too big picture and too long-term and I anchor against those really lofty longer-term goals and I anchor like my sense of worth against how close I am to that, um, I get really anxious versus like kind of breaking that larger goal down into little pieces and anchoring my sense of fulfillment and self-worth against if I committed to something that day and did it that made me feel so much better. And I I definitely think I learned a lot about how to manage my anxiety while doing impossible things um, while writing the book as well. And now I know what I'm naming the episode. So thank you. (laughs) That was great. I think I'll name it like managing anxiety while doing impossible things. Yes. Yes. Great. Love it. Because we are centering May around mental health. uh, And anxiety seems to be like this big elephant in the room that is just taking over, but no one really wants to talk about it. So yeah, what would you, what's one piece of advice that you would offer to someone who is struggling with their own mental health or their own anxiety and they just don't know where to turn? I mean, I would honestly suggest like unplugging for like three days. Like that really always makes me feel better and a little bit more centered, like get off Instagram, don't answer every text, leave people on red, like turn your phone on silent and just spend three days like either alone, if that's what makes you feel whole or with friends that you really care about, if that's what makes you feel whole, 
But I think kind of like getting offline as a first step is really important because it'll help you like clear the sizzle in your head and understand maybe a little bit where the anxiety is coming from. And then obviously reach out for help. Like therapy has been really critical for me over the past few years, doing these impossible things and navigating anxiety through it all. And if you can't afford therapy, that's totally understandable. I think like journaling is also really great. Like sometimes so much of my anxiety comes from like a bunch of thoughts whizzing around that I feel like I can't, it's like a, what it's it called in Harry Potter, like a snitch, like the little thing that the flies little, around yes, in the game. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's sometimes what my anxiety feels like in my head and, and writing out my thoughts is always really therapeutic. Um, and I do that a lot when I like, there have been instances in the past year and a half where I haven't been able to afford therapy either. And so journaling is like a nice way to fill the gaps. And it's also something tangible. I think we can, we can do, and it forces people just to like tune out what's going on, like sit in yourself, which is sometimes the hardest thing. Yeah. Uh, Now this is the last question. And it's something that we ask all of our guests. What is one piece of advice you would offer other 20 somethings who are trying to make the most of it? Have more fun and like have fun on your terms. I wish I had more fun in my twenties. I feel like I'm going to have to make up for it in my thirties, but I feel like the most pleasurable parts of my twenties were in, frankly, in my earlier twenties when I wasn't worried about like how people thought of me or who I was going to become. I didn't care about like, Forbes 30 under 30 or a certain number of Instagram followers. And I I actually have never really cared about those things. I think I felt mounting pressure to care about those things as I've gotten older. But the most fun parts of my 20s was just like being really spontaneous, like working on silly projects for the sake of working on them just because I thought they were interesting, like learning about something new just because I wanted to. I think like detaching like your fun and your hobbies from like clout or like social media or gains in some way and just letting it be for the sake of what it is and doing it for the sake of doing it is it's like one of the best ways to kind of find your path because when you do things for the sake of doing them, you're, you're finding flow. You're like living in the moment, you're finding joy. And the sooner that you can find what brings you joy and what brings you flow, um, I think the sooner you'll be on a path in your mid to late twenties that feels fulfilled on all fronts. Like if you're enjoying your free time and you know what that feels like, you'll probably be less inclined to get stuck in a job that you hate because you know what joy is, you know what flow is, and you're not like accustomed to this like masochistic feeling all the time. And I feel like so many people think that they're twenties have to be masochistic because you're like building into the next decade and you want to build like wealth and you want to build stability and all of these things. But I really think that if you pursue your flow and you pursue your joy, those, those things usually follow. That is such a great piece of advice. I know it's something that I'm trying to be more mindful about as well, because I like, you don't have to have it all figured out. And it's like, why is there this pressure at the age that I am? Like, oh my God, I need a full-time job. Oh my God, I have to like be super successful. Oh my God, I have to do this. It's like, why can't I just sit in the age that I am and actually like have time for myself and do what I enjoy doing? It's, you said it perfectly that there's this like pressure to prepare for the next decade. Well, isn't there always going to be that pressure for the next decade? Like, why can't we just sit in where we are? Exactly. 
Well, Ali, I know I love speaking with you, but where can our listeners find you and learn a little bit more about Bulletin? Thank you so much for having me, Charlotte. Uh, this was awesome. You can find me on Instagram at Allie Kriegs. It's A-L-I-K-R-I-E-G-S. And you can buy my book, How to Build a Goddamn Empire on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. Uh, it's also sold internationally now, which is super cool. Nice. And you can also buy the audiobook on Audible. And I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to hear more of my voice... Uh, that's definitely the way to go. That is awesome. And I love that it's at local bookstores. That's like the best thing. There's obviously a little bit Kindle, but like I'm covering my bookshelf so you can't see, but there's really something special about just like holding a physical copy of the book. I'm a hardcover girl too, for sure. Yeah. They just take up so much more space than paperback. Yeah, totally. Well, Allie, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be on our podcast today. I absolutely am so excited for this episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can follow Allie on Instagram at Allie Creeks, and you can find her book online at Barnes and Noble or at your local bookstore. And make sure to follow 20 and Trying on Instagram at 20andtrying.podcast. You can also join our Facebook group, a community of other 20-somethings all trying to make the most out of it. Peyton and I also want to thank everyone for tuning into our May Mental Health Month. While May is dedicated to mental health awareness, Pay and I want to stress we will continue dedicating our time and resources to raising awareness for mental health. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week.